I'll pick up at verse 1. Hear God's holy word. These are the records of the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab, the firstborn, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests, whom he ordained to serve as priests. But Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered strange fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of their father Aaron. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may serve him. Then they shall perform the duties for him for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to do the service of the tabernacle. They shall also keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting along with the duties of the sons of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. You shall thus give the Levites to Aaron, to his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the sons of Israel. So you shall appoint Aaron and his sons that they may keep their priesthood but the layman who comes near shall be put to death. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of the firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall be mine, for all of the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all of the firstborn in Israel from man to beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, Number the sons of Levi by their fathers' households, by their families. Every male from a month old and upward you shall number. So Moses numbered them according to the word of the Lord, just as he had commanded. These then are the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon and Kohath and Merari. These are the names of the sons of Gershon by their families, Libni and Shimi, and the sons of Kohath by their families, Amran and Izhar, and Hebron, and Uziel. And the sons of Merari by their families, Mali, and Mushi, these are the families of the Levites according to their father's households. Of Gershon was the family of the Libnites, and the family of the Shimites, these are the families of the Gershonites. Their numbered men and the numbering of every male from a month old and upward, even their numbered men, was 7,500. The families of the Gershonites were to camp behind the tabernacle westward, and the leader of the father's household of the Gershonites was Elisaph, the son of Lael. Now the duties of the sons of Gershon in the tent of meeting involved the tabernacle and the tent, its covering, and the screen for the doorway of the tent meeting, and the hangings of the court, the screen for the doorway of the court, which is around the tabernacle and the altar and its cords, according to all the service concerning them. Of Kohath was the family of the Amronites, and the family of Izharites, and the family of the Hebronites, the family of the Uzielites. These are the families of the Kohathites. In the numbering of every male from a month old and upward, there were 8,600 performing the duties of the sanctuary. The families of the sons of Kohath were to camp on the southward side of the tabernacle, and the leaders of the father's households on the Kohath families was Elisaphan, the son of Uziel. Now their duties involved the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the utensils of the sanctuary with which they minister, and and the screen and all the services concerning them. Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, was the chief of the leaders of Levi. He had oversight of those who performed the duties of the sanctuary. Of Merari was of the family of the Mahalites and the family of the Mushites. These were the family of Merari. Their numbered men in the numbering of every male from month old upward was 6,200 the leader of the father's households of the family of Merari was Zuriel, the son of Abihel. They were 
to camp on the northward side of the tabernacle. Now the appointed duties of the sons of Merari involve the families, the frames, excuse me, of the tabernacle, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, all its equipment, and the service concerning them, the pillars around the court with their sockets and their pegs and their cords. Now those who were to camp before the tabernacle, eastward before the tent of meeting toward the sunrise, are Moses and Aaron and his sons, performing the duties of the sanctuary for the obligation of the sons of Israel. But the layman coming near was to be put to death. All of the numbered men whom God and Aaron, whom Moses and Aaron numbered at the command of the Lord by their families, every male from the month old upward was 22,000. Then the Lord said to Moses, Number every firstborn male of the sons of Israel from a month old and upward and make a list of their names. You shall take the Levites for me. I am the Lord. Instead of all of the firstborn among the sons of Israel and the cattle of the Levites, instead of the firstborn among the cattle of the sons of Israel. So Moses numbered all the firstborn among the sons of Israel, just as the Lord commanded him. And all of the male, firstborn males by the number of names from a month old and upward from, for their numbered names were 22,273. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the sons of Israel and the cattle of the Levites, and the Levites shall be mine, for I am the Lord. For the ransom of 273 of the firstborn of the sons of Israel who are in excess beyond the Levites, you shall take five shekels apiece per head. You shall take them in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. And give the money, the ransom of those who are in excess among them to Aaron and his sons. So Moses took the ransom money from among those who were in excess beyond those ransomed by the Levites. For the firstborn of the sons of Israel, he took the money in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary, 1,365. Then Moses gave the ransom money to Aaron, to his sons, at the command of the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious God, we thank you for your Bible, for the whole of it, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Thank you for it. Thank you for this passage, albeit um, uh, a difficult passage in a way. Help me, gracious God, as the divider and the dispenser, the preacher of this. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide me. Guide us all in the reception of the truth contained in this, our Lord, as we consider the business of uh, your priests and their priestly work. Help us, gracious God, give us eyes to see Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you have um, read the book of Numbers, know the book of Numbers, or you've just been paying attention, this is, I don't know, I guess our sixth or seventh sermon, something like that. I, I want to um, say a few words about the pre- preceding uh, context of chapter 3, obviously chapter 1 and chapter 2. And there's, there's a lot of similarities going on here. In the previous uh, chapter 1, we had a military census. We spoke about the business of conscription uh, taken from all the tribes of Israel, except one, this particular tribe. And, and that was um, for um, uh, numbering and then naming and then organizing all of those young men, was it 20 to 50, I think, was the age of the fighting men, uh, for dedicated um, military service. And so we saw that in uh, chapter 1, certainly, and then a part of chapter 2. But even in chapter 2, we start to see we're moving from 
the numbering and the naming and the organizing of the dedicated um, military servants. And now here, this is the same theme, but we're no longer looking at the military servants. We're looking at the priestly servants. Excuse me, but it's the same idea. We go from numbering, so as the warriors, the militia, had a a, a census, so to the Levites, the priestly servants, they have a census. Then we have the naming of the heads, and then the structuring of the Levitical uh, servants within the camp. Same ideas. So sometimes when you come to a book like this, you think, what in the world? With all the redundancy and the numbers and the very hard-to-pronounce names, we're so apt to skip over and not see the importance of this. But if you can put your crystal, one, because we think the Bible is about Christ, so always be wearing your Christological lenses. Where is Christ? Typified, as we'll talk about in just a bit. But then if you can step back and have your thematic, you want to ask of the passage, who, what, where, when, why, all of those questions. You want to be a good detective. And then you start to, you start to see the things which are the salient or the important things which make up my title, the suretyship and substitutionary atonement. And then you can start to say, okay, I, I get this. It's not just, what's this all about, Alice? So you see that idea. Census of the military, census of the priestly service. So dedicated servants, but different, different forms of service and so on. And then the organizing of all of the servants in the, the camp. And it's all organized around the, t- the tabernacle, which is a God places his holy presence there with the Holy of Holies, but it's meant to be mobile. So they're, they're going to be on the move for 40 years. But all of the armies are camped around all four sar- sides. In all four, uh, uh, there's divisions, I think, 333 and so on, of Levites around uh, the tabernacle. So it's very, very structured. That's what we, we have here. I mentioned having the Christological lenses. This is one of the reasons... This is one of the reasons why I think, one of the primary reasons I came into the Reformed faith. I didn't come out of the womans of the Reformed faith. It's, it, the Reformed faith, in my opinion, it draws that line, that golden thread of redemption, the best, I think, among the churches that I've been uh, 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 going to, of showing me Christ from Genesis 3.15 clear through the Bible. If you would like, I love our secondary standards, um, chapter 8 is on Christ. Chapter, chapter 7 is on the covenant. And it, I would argue, read chapter 7 of our confession with the scripture proofs. And what you'll see is that these fellows, with the tabernacle, all of the furniture, and then later with the, the temple, it's the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is the preaching of Jesus Christ. That's what's going on. So the priests are pointing to Christ. The sacrifice are pointing to Christ. Uh, even the furniture, even the tent, even the tabernacle, even the feast days, everything is pointing to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not, I'm not making this up. Um, the, the Holy Spirit says to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we celebrate the Passover. Christ is our Passover. Remember John the Baptist? Behold the what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the, sca- he's the scapegoat. He's the Passover Lamb. So, we see the structure. These things ultimately will point us to Jesus Christ. This is how the Old Testament saints came to believe in Jesus Christ savingly. Read the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Moses forsook the glories of Pharaoh's household and refused to be called Pharaoh's son. Why? 
to suffer reproach with Christ's people. Well, how did he know Christ? Passages like this. That's how he knew Christ. The same thing is true with Abraham. The same thing is true of David. Um, At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. David writes Psalm 16 and says, God will not let the Holy One, the Messiah, suffer decay. So now, my main method, and you see this, if you come to church, I don't know, two times, we are not a tricky church to figure, I'm not a tricky preacher. You'll see what I'm trying to do from each passage. I'm trying to glean the main doctrines, the main teachings, and then I don't do anything tricky. I do what Martin Lloyd-Jones attempted to do. I can't hold Martin Lloyd-Jones' bags, but it's the same principle. Explain, apply. Explain, apply. So it's very simple. What are the main doctrines? Seek to explain them and then hopefully make application. But I mentioned part of the difficulty with numbers is what I just read. I mean, it's, it's even reading this, you think, am I losing everybody after I'm like halfway through here? And you just think there's nothing here. It's like when you read the genealogy of Jesus Christ in, in Matthew, and then is it Luke? Uh, you think, really? And who's it's beget? Who's it's and who's it's beget? Who's it's? And then the generations from the deportation. Oh, oh, if, we, if you go slower, there is so much divine fodder in these passages. But I do confess that the repetitiveness of what we just looked at, it does make it difficult. And because we tend to want something easy, we skip over the things that seemingly are hard. But I would say, beloved, don't, let's not do that. So if you look at the, um, usually what I do for my sermons, titles, is I'm going to tell you what I have found for the main doctrine in the title. I'll either lift it right from uh, the sermon itself. It will be a verse that will summarize the main teaching or I'll summarize it for us. And what we're looking at tonight, primarily, there are other things here, certainly, but what I, my purpose is not to get bogged down. I'm trying to take a chapter a week, 36, 40 weeks, something like that. I, I want to look at the, I, what I would find is the primary truths of this passage And if you look at especially, look at Numbers 3, what, uh, 12 to 13. Behold, I take the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of the firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall be mine. So the firstborn are mine. And he essentially, God says, I'm taking the Levites in lieu of the firstborn of Israel. And, And then in verses 45 and 50, he uses the term ransom. So instead of the ransom fee for the firstborn, the Levites are the ransom fee themselves, their persons. And so the two concepts that we find here with those particular verses especially, which is what I aim to unpack, is suretyship and substitutionary atonement. And those things are very, very, they're related. One is the person, the surety, and the other is the work of the surety, in this case, it's substitutionary atonement. Hebrews uh, 7, I forget the text. It'll come to me later. King James uses the word surety, I think, particularly there. Uh, but here's an Oxford Dictionary definition of a surety. A surety is a person who takes responsibility for another's performance of an obligatory duty. And then the example would be in the payment of uh, 
uh, of a debt or something like that. In a modern context, if, you, if you're a young person, I don't know what a young person would be, 20 to 25, and you want to buy something of some size and you've got to go into debt, talk to your folks before you do that, but when you go into debt, if you're 20 to 25, the bank or the lender is going to say, that's really interesting, son. Why don't you go get your dad or your mom and we want them to be the co-signer? And you know why? Because they're thinking you're going to default on the debt and then we're going for your mom or your dad. Your mom or your dad, when they co-sign, that's a surety. They're saying, if my little buttercup defaults on this loan, I will pay. They're a surety. So when we think of surety, think of the idea of a person who is obliging or promising to pay the debt of another. So person and promise. And then in this context, especially as we add the idea of I'm going to take these folks in lieu of the firstborn and and the idea of ransom, that is the performance of the surety. That's the carrying out of the promise. So you have the person is is the surety. He makes the promise. And then in this case, the actual performance of it is the surety substitute actually pays uh, what um, what uh, the person under the debt requires, and then as applied to the Lord Jesus Christ, He is our surety substitution substitute, substitute. And so these fellows, this is why I say to have our Christological lenses on. This is where, by the time you get to the book of Hebrews, which I'm going to quote a lot tonight, because Hebrews Hebrews unpacks the ceremonial law. So if you were raised in a dispensational church, some of the things I'm going to say, you're going to be looking at me thinking, what is this pastor out of his mind? It's a different exegetical grid of looking at the Bible than, say, a dispensationalist. And I was a dispensationalist for a while, so I'm not picking on anybody. I love John MacArthur. I would never want to debate him, who is a dispensationalist. It's just a different way of looking at the Bible. The book of Hebrews, the way that I understand it, the Reformed Church understand it, exegetes a book like Leviticus and a book like Numbers. It explains what the ceremonial law is all about. The Holy of Holies is Christ entering the real Holy of Holies. The the Lamb of God is really Jesus Christ. Those kind of things, if that makes sense. So when I I will use Hebrews back and forth to explain what we're talking about. Let me read that for us. Hebrews 7. Christ is this true priestly servant who is our surety. Christ is that one who is the person, he makes the promise, and then the performance. Hebrews 7.14, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, when was Melchizedek? Is it um, Genesis 14? He's a type of Christ. Who has become such, not on the basis of the law of physical requirement, like the Levitical priests, but according to the power of indestructible life. For this is attached of him, Jesus. You are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And let me jump down to Hebrews 7, verse 20. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest forever. So much more also Jesus has become the guarantee, the surety of a better covenant. So the Bible calls Jesus Christ our surety of a better covenant, a guarantee And the way that Paul puts this in 2 Corinthians 5, which is the essence of the gospel, substitutionary atonement by our surety, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be what? 
sin on our behalf. That's that surety so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's, that's it. That's surety and that's substitutionary atonement. The person, the promise, the performance. It's taught right here. Now you say, well, I don't quite see it as clear in, in Numbers the way that I see it in Hebrews. Yes, the Bible is, it, it's, it, it's God's word and there, it is harmonious. It, it has a, a unity to it, but it's progressive in its nature. And it gets progressively clear as you go through redemptive history. So in the beginning, you have the gospel in Genesis 3.15, but it's really much more clear by the time you hit John 3.16. You see what I mean? So um, was it Augustine that said um, the, um, the New Testament was in the Old in seed form, and the Old Testament is in the New in bloom? Something like that. So that's what we see. Um, now, as regards to these priests and the priestly help, helpers, a little bit of a, I'll probably say this a lot because we can easily get confused. Uh, Leah, Jacob and Leah had, um, what did they have? Six sons and then one daughter, Dinah. The third boy was uh, Levi. The folks that we're looking at, and we're going to actually look at these folks, I want to say till chapter 10, uh, almost from... 2 to 10 is all about the Levites, which is significant. And we'll talk about this next week. Um, But these folks are descended from uh, Jacob and Leah, from the third boy, uh, Levi. And um, sometimes you hear things like this. I've probably said this myself, that the Levites are priests. That is true, but perhaps we should kind of like rightly understand it a a little bit better. Um, it's actually one family from within the, the Levitical tribe, from one family in addition, that are technically the priests. Levi produces the priestly class. It is Kohath, the second boy of Levi, that produces Aaron, from which we have the priests. I know it's going to get tricky. Um, but technically, what, what is the saying? All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. So Aaron is a Levite. He's a Kohathite, but descended from Aaron, one particular family. And it's only through Aaron that God says, these are the priests. These guys will make the the sacrifices. These guys will make the intercession. The rest of the Levites, I would argue, let's call them priestly helpers or servants to the priest. Does that make sense? So the Levites, descended from the, the line of Aaron, they are the actual priests. All of the other fellows that we're looking at, they will be helpers, priestly helpers to those priests. And that's what we're considering. Look at verse 1. This is, um, we, we find this is very common in the Bible. You, you have this phrase. Now these are the records of the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. There, there's a common refrain that will run through the book of, uh, of uh, Numbers, and indeed, a lot of the Old Testament. God is telling his people here, in context here, and then hear us, that this is the very word of God. This is God-breathed. This is the 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17. All scripture. So when you come here, you think, what in the world? What in the world? This is inspired. And this is written for our instruction. So there are some people who say, well, doctrinally, the Bible is correct, 
but factually, historically, the, you know, the business of Adam and Eve and creation, yeah, I don't think so. Oh, beloved, there's a guy, William Lane Craig, who is a genius. I, I, he is a genius. But he will say Genesis 1 through 11 is a religion. He calls it religio myth or mythio religion. It's myth. He doesn't believe in the talking serpent. He doesn't believe in Adam and Eve, not as history. That is a dangerous thing. This is fact, fact. Noah wasn't fake. Adam and Eve weren't fake. The talking serpent wasn't fake. It's not myth. This is fact. So this is written as history because it is history. There's a man, um, he's a talk show host, and he was interviewing another man. One man was a, is a very liberal fellow interviewing another fellow who's a psychiatrist, I think, by training. And the fellow that was interviewing him is an open Christ hater. I mean, he hates Jesus. He hates, he's open, anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Christian. And he said, the Bible's all nonsense. He's the critic of the Bible, this. And then the defender of the Bible is the very popular psychiatrist guy. He said, well, yes, yes, the Bible is fiction, but it's the fiction, it's the fiction that the Western culture was built on. So I have the rejector is saying the Bible is nonsense. And then I have the the defender of the Bible saying, yes, yes, the Bible is fiction, but it's the fiction of the Western culture, therefore we should understand it. How do you interact with that? Is the defender right? He's wrong. They're on the same camp. I I like the other guy more, and I, I agree with the other guy. The Bible's not fiction. The Bible's not fiction. None of it's fiction. I know why the guy is saying what he's saying, and I wish I could get a hold of him and say, be quiet until you're instructed. So you're a James 3.1. Don't talk religion until you know religion. Stay in your lane. It's not fiction. The other guy's wrong. This guy is wrong. And so if it, without the Holy Spirit, you come here and you think, no way. But it's once the Holy Spirit gives you faith, we we believe all of the Bible, the threats, the promises, the things that are pleasant, the things that are difficult, uh, but it's because of the work of the Holy Spirit. So um, we have the inspiration. The Bible says it. Now, if someone says to you, why do you believe the Bible is the word of God? And your answer will be this, because the Bible says it's the word of God. Now, of course, they're going to claim that that's circular reasoning, which it is, but you don't say it's circular reasoning. What you say is it's propositional reasoning because it sounds smarter. I'm being tongue-in-cheek. We are convinced that the word of God is the word of God, not because we were argued into belief. God, the Holy Spirit, opened our blind eyes. It's a miracle. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. A Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, next to the Bible, that was the very first book that God used in a mighty way. So I'm all for apologetics. And I realize he's different than the presuppositional apologetics I learned in my tradition. Josh McDowell's a rock star. So I'm not against those things. But fundamentally, we believe this as opposed to those other fellows I mentioned because the Holy Spirit did something inside of you. Amen? He gave us faith. It's a miracle to believe the Bible and really believe it. Now, let's kind of compare and contrast, which is what we're looking at, the typological priestly sureties and substitutionary atoners versus the antitype. And when I say antitype, it's not like antichrist. Antitype means the fulfillment, the shadow. So I'm going to use these fellows and we're going to go, look how weak they were. 
or the inferiority of the earthly tip, typological priests as opposed to the anti-type who is the perfect. That's how I'm going to come at the rest. So when you look at this chapter, you have all of these various priests and the priestly helpers and so on. He has, uh, God has, what do we, he has one tribe, the tribal family of Levi, and then um, he breaks it out through three families, uh, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, and then he kind of separates Aaron, so almost four, and then all of the boys that descend from these four groups. Um, I think Aaron was, what, three years older than uh, Moses? And then, so what we have is a great plurality of priests and priestly helpers under the old administration of the covenant of grace. We have many, 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 many. How many priests do we have in the new administration of the covenant of grace? The many shows the inferiority. I'm not speaking against God's divine ordinance, God forbid, but one shows the inferiority of the earthly priest and it shows the superiority of the ultimate anti-type priest, Christ. Many in one. And then um, one of the reasons that you have these family or this caste system uh, of, uh, of priests is um, they could only serve a little while. And I think next week, the, 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 the priestly service was what? Active duty service was 30 to 50, I think. And I think David added another 10 years, 30 to 60. So 30 to 50 is what we find in numbers. By the time David comes along, I, I want to say it's extended to 60, but maybe you guys could correct me later. But I'm not talking about the priests here are limited because they could only serve for a few years. Why were they ultimately limited for which you needed, you kept needed a perpetual um, supply of them? What limited them? They died. They died. So I've said this many times, and I hope you don't take offense, but it just so, it stuck with me. I, I, the home I came from, my, my father was madly devoted to my mother. I learned about uh, uh, what it was to be a Christian husband and uh, a husband and a father from watching my dad, he, as far as his Christianity, but he was devoted to my mom. He was a fabulous father, um, completely fabulous. Uh, he had lots of warts and so on, but he was fanatically devoted to my mom, and he loved us kids. And he would always take time. He was always there for us. Now, there were other problems, but he was always there for us. My sisters called my dad their rock. Dad is our rock. And I love my dad madly. Uh, he died when I was 34. It's a sad thing if your dad is your rock. And I'm, of course, I want you to love your dad and your mom but why is it such a sad thing if your dad is your rock? Because they die when you're 34. Um, or you're 18. Or you're two. And then what do you have? Where's my rock? The temporality of the priests revealed their inferiority of this priestly class. And it points to the priest that never dies. He died and then rose again. Revelation 1. He's never going to die again. Our priest is alive. He's making intercession for us right now. And, 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 and so the death prohibits these priests from fully functioning 
in their job as sureties and substitutionary atoners, but not the ultimate priest. Does that make sense? So you have the plurality of them, the inferiority of them caused by death, and then the text also gives us one reason why we have the death of these people, which makes them temporal or brief. You, You hear this all the time. Death is natural. It isn't somewhat natural if you understand it rightly, but it's not natural in that it was super added after the creation and after the fall. So death is is a part of the curse, and it's the last enemy for which Christ conquers, and the devil holds us in bondage by it. And the reason things die, I I am not a long earther. I know there's people that fight over that too, but I'm a young earther. I'm a 624, literal 24 hours, and and that kind of a thing. I don't think critters were dying for billions of years before Adam and Eve sinned. I think once Adam sinned, things started to die. That's what Romans chapter 5 says. And so death was introduced because God cursed Adam and those who descended from him by ordinary generation and the whole planet, the universe, uh, as a curse for sin, and the curse was death. And so what we're looking at here is one of the other things that are inferior about the Old Testament priestly class is they were sinners. And they bring up the two boys. Aaron had four sons, and they were all going to serve as priests. And two of the boys, Nadab and Abihu, it mentions here that they died in the wilderness, childless. Do you know where that comes from, where they're actual dying and why they die? You know where that comes from? I'll read that to us. It comes from the book of Leviticus. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans. They're in the process of performing their priestly service. Again, typological of Jesus. And after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord. They made it up. They did what they wanted to do which God had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. They died before the Lord. Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. That's the dad. I can't even imagine. Moses called also to Mishael and Elisaph, the sons of of Aaron's uncle Uziel and said to them, come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. So they came forward, carried them in their tunics outside of the camp as Moses had said. Moses said to Aaron, to his sons in Eleazar and Ithamar, do, do not uncover your heads nor tear your, tear your clothes. You can't even mourn. I can't imagine. So that you will not die and God will not become wrathful, wrathful against the congregation But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning which the Lord had brought about. You shall not go up from the doorway of the tent of meeting, or you will die. That's because the anointing is upon them. And for the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. So they did according to the words of Moses. And I'm going to throw this verse in there. This partly explains why Nadab and Abihu did what they did. Verse 8. The Lord then spoke to to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons when you come into the tent of meeting so that you will not uh, die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generation so that they may make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean. 
Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire. They made up their religion. Why? They were drunk on the job. I am a teetotaler. I think the, the Bible says that you can use uh, alcohol if you use it lawfully. I think Jesus, I know Jesus, uh, used wine. I know people say there are three different words for wine. I only learned one in Greek. Uh, oidon, I don't know if the other one, fruit of the vine. You can't abuse alcohol. Um, these men were drunk on the job in holy things, and they offered what they wanted, and God struck them down. Uh, for which we learn, here is a, a very good reason why the typological priesthood was much inferior uh, to, uh, to the antitype to Christ. They're all sinners. Even aside from this, the high priest, when he went in on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he went into the Holy of Holies and he offered a sacrifice. He first had to offer a sacrifice for, for what person? Himself. Every Old Testament priest was a sinner. They, they, they needed the atonement that they represented, but not Christ. Christ is the sinless Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. He never sinned. Jesus never sinned personally. I know there are these philosophical debates that creep into Reformed churches sometimes. The peccability of Christ, the impeccability of Christ. It's a fancy way of saying, could Jesus have sinned? Oh, I don't like that. I don't even like to hear that, that Jesus could have sinned personally. When the Bible says in, in Galatians chapter 3 that he became a curse, it's by imputation. It's the imputation. It's, it's, it's the surety ship. It's a forensic or a legal term. God reckons it to him. That's what's going on. Never did Jesus commit, thought, word, or deed, any sin. Our surety is utterly spotless. The Lamb of God is utterly spotless. Our, our priest is both priest and the sacrifice. He's the sacrificer and the sacrifice. But he's spotless. So we see uh, that. Another thing that we uh, learn, and I read it from Hebrews 7, the uh, Old Testament priests come from the tribal uh, family of, uh, uh, of Levi and the various families that we've talked about and so on. And Christ did not come from Levi. And the Bible makes a big point to say that he's like Melchizedek. And um, Zadok was one of the Old Testament priests. And Zadok means righteousness. Melchi means king of righteousness. And he's all, Melchizedek was the king or the prince of what city? Salem. Melchizedek, king of righteousness, prince or king of Salem, of, of peace. Christ, our righteousness, our righteous priest, Christ, our prince of... So when they bring up Melchizedek, it shows the uniqueness without father, without mother. You remember that. Obviously, Melchizedek had a dad and a mom. So it's meant to show that we don't know his lineage, but that Christ is utterly unique. And maybe one of the last things I, I want to say as regards to comparing the, uh, the, the anti-typological priesthood, the, excuse me, the typological priesthood to the anti-type Christ is for the next couple of chapters, we're going to look at God saying to the various tribes, uh, families within this tribe, tribal family. Uh, here are your duties for the Kohathites. Here are your duties for the Gershonites and for the Merariites. Here are your duties and all of the various 
some families hear all your duties. Um, obviously, Aaron and his sons will perform the sacrifice and the, the intercession. But the, then with the other guys, the priestly helpers, some guys break down the tents and then they, they carry them and then they set them up. Then they can't camp around them. Uh, some guys are on guard duty. And then some of the Levitical priests are the singers. So God distributes all of this various work, again, which teaches uh, 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 thematically the, the work of Jesus Christ in our salvation to all of these various people. Are any w- one of these men competent to perform all of the work of suretyship and sacrificial substitutionary atonement? Any one man competent to do it all? No. What God does with all of this division of labor, he says, essentially, he says, none of them are fully competent. None of them can do all of the work. It shows their inferiority. And Christ comes along, and when Judas comes with the, with the guys, what happens to the rest of Christ's disciples? They go away. Does anyone help Christ with his suretyship and his substitutionary atoning work? Does anyone help him? He does it alone. He's utterly, 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 fully competent. This is why I'm against, and I know I don't mean to get anybody mad. I will never, ever, ever, God strike me dead, I pray I would never, say justification is anything but justification by faith alone in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. And yes, we should prove that's true by good works. I believe that. But I will never, I pray I would never, add one good work of mine or yours to the finished work of Christ that destroys grace, and it destroys justification, it destroys Christ's suretyship. God says through Paul in, in Romans chapter 11, I think, add one work to grace, and what do you do to grace? You destroy it. You destroy it. Christ doesn't need any help. And the moment we say, we're going to help you, we're going to help you. There is a thing in the church of my youth. It's called the treasury of merit. I used to know the, the Latin word for it. It, there's a word that means super works, works beyond the requirement of the law, that you do more works, good works, than God requires, and he puts them in a pool. They think this. You, you, they get put into a pool, and then they're dispensed for the salvation of God's people via indulgences for people that need more. You do more than the law requires. What does the law require of you, beloved? To love the Lord your God with what? All heart, strength, and mind. And what's the second greatest command? Love your neighbor as yourself. Who here has ever done that perfectly? Christ. I'm not against good works. You know them by their fruits. But Christ is competent. Only competent. And he saves to the uttermost. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.